0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 137. In this episode, we're talking about disaster films and the Bible with Dr. Michelle Fletcher. Dr. Michelle Fletcher. Is research fellow at king's college london on the visual commentary on scripture and she's the author of reading revelation as pastiche imitating the past with bloomsbury and tnt clark team members on the episode from the two cities include brandon hurlbert and myself dr john anthony dunn so brandon this was a lovely conversation with dr fletcher we've just finished this wonderful series on jesus films and in this conversation, we're kind of going a bit beyond that. We're talking about disaster films. So we're talking about disaster films and how they kind of draw upon certain tropes or elements from Revelation. And of course, one of the things that is lacking from Jesus films are
1: um, explosions. I, I think that's exactly right. That's been my you know main critique of any Jesus film I've seen, which is why isn't there more explosions?
0: We we um, really we really need Michael Bay to direct a Jesus film. I think that's like one of the like conclusions I've taken away from the series and from this conversation with Dr. Fletcher.
1: No, honestly, I mean, but I mean, in reality, he already has. That is the story of Transformers. Um <laughs> it's just a Christ film with cars. i really I really enjoyed this conversation uh with Michelle. I mean, it was Her book on revelation as pastiche that really helped me think better about film. I feel like this whole series has just been like one hero after another. Uh, And so I'm glad that we get to end it with someone who has greatly impacted uh, my own uh, research and scholarship. One of the favorite things I I love talking about other than, you know, simply just a lot of films, we talked a lot about don't look up uh, a recent uh, disaster film, uh, but we really talked about the interplay between, you know, who are the villains, you know, who are the, the bad guys. uh, And it very rarely are the villains, the kind of natural disasters or the war or the, the the comet hurtling towards earth. The villains are always us. And uh, that was something Uh, profound in our conversations and also the idea of hope about where and what are we placing our hope at and even a secular society still wrestles with depictions of hope that look very Christian and look very akin to what's being portrayed in the book of Revelation. So I I really appreciated uh, what Michelle had to say about all these films. As always, you can find us on Instagram,
0: Twitter, and Facebook, or you can visit us at our website at twocities.com And if you'd like to leave us a, a rating and review, that would be fantastic. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Michelle Fletcher. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Fletcher.
2: Thanks so much for having me here. It's a great privilege.
0: So we just finished up a series on Jesus films the last several weeks and we still have a lot of questions about bible and film and how uh film utilizes tropes from from scripture and and these sorts of things and so we thought as maybe a bit of an epilogue we might uh carry on that conversation a little bit more with you as somebody who you know worked on Revelation used film theory to talk about you know how Revelation is is incorporating scripture and in these sorts of things so we're really excited to to chat with you. You tell us a little bit about your current research on disaster films?
2: Yeah, great. Thanks so much. So, I've been really interested in the uh, increasing interest in the end of the world in the disaster genre. And I've been looking at it in relation to the fact that disaster's always been in Hollywood. I mean, everybody wants to go and see some smiting and some smashing on screen. That's part and parcel of why we go and see it. But since. In the 50s, there was a tend towards the end of the world. In sci-fi, obviously, there was the nuclear threat, which turned people's heads to think about what might happen with the end of humanity. In the 60s, Japanese cinema looks at this in relation to the last war. What would happen if the world was totally wiped out by a nuclear holocaust? But the disaster genre which appeared in the 1970s first of all focused on small groups of people coming together and facing a kind of end of their world but in the 1990s when sci-fi allowed uh, when um special effects allowed people to really push the boundary on this the end of the world started to creep into disaster so i started looking at the appearance of the end and that as a trend within the disaster genre in relation to contemporary thinking, and then mapping that into today's cinema, which is very rare. You can find something which reappears through different decades. But we've just had Don't Look Up released uh, last year, which has got the uh, full-on cosmic catastrophe of the world being destroyed with a comet. There's also Gerard Butler's Greenland, where he also faces with his family, the smiting... Action of a giant comet whacking into the earth. And um, there's the pretty terrible, am I allowed to slag off a film on here? Moonfall, uh Roland Emmerich, which came out this year, uh, which I won't give away what it's about, but that's definitely about Earth facing its potential end. It, and so it, it is about
1: is it, the moon falling.
2: It is, but with some really, really special twists. <laughs>
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You
2: thought it was just the moon, but bring on another civilization. I thought civilization. it was just a terrible film. Yeah, no, no. It's got some extra aliens and AI to add on. It's, it's awesome. Um, so, yeah, that's where I'm I'm tracing things, really, because I'm interested in the end of the world, right? Because I'm a revelation person. I like to look at destruction and disaster. And this is the natural playing out of my interest of how secular apocalypse, Conrad Oswald calls it, plays out. Where are we with this? What happens when cinema turns its gaze to the end of the world?
1: So, yeah, I think you, you bring up a really um, interesting point. So even with Don't Look Up, what is obviously a political commentary on the world today. Um, and it's kind of, it's very secular, but at, at the very end you have this, what I, what I thought as, as a Christian, a very meaningful prayer that I think, yeah, that's the only thing one could reasonably pray in the face of a extinction level event. And I thought that was actually really meaningful. So even in cinema today, w- cinema can't and Hollywood can't quite get away from religion, can't quite get far enough away from scripture. And I wonder if you could talk about, is there a progression there? Is this a kind of second naivete where we've tried to do that and realize maybe we can't fully get away from scripture, even though, you know, uh, thinking about the end of the world is just a human thing and not necessarily only a Christian reality. Yeah,
2: that's really interesting. Um, Tell me to come back to it if I don't raise it. I think that there might be a bit of a poking actually going on in Don't Look Up in the final, uh, in that final section, in relation to what's going on with that, with the prayer, with the meal. I think when you look at what's being overlaid in relation to the shots of the ecosystem and the destruction of the earth, that there might be a little bit more critique going on of liberal agendas in relation to what we put emphasis on and importance and actually how prayers like that seem to have some sort of sense but might not really be achieving much in relation to actual threats that are happening but you hit bang on the nail bang on the head in relation to scripture's part of American culture right you're not going to get away from it and pet it's a part of American culture and they're always in disaster movies and skyscrapers a part of American culture and they're always in disaster movies you always have to have something high being knocked down you always have somebody rescuing a dog and you always have a little nod to some sort of very very light Christian agenda the most overt of Christian narratives within the disaster genre was the Poseidon adventure back in the 1970s because the it has a showdown between two priests. So Gene Hackman's character preaches this kind of self-help Christianity and he's um, non-affiliated, very young, very fired up. And he gives this kind of really hot up speech on the boat about how everybody, God's not gonna help you if you don't help yourself. And then there's the more established minister. And when the disaster strikes, the two are set against each other. The uh, minister who is part of an established congregation chooses to stay with the wounded and get whacked out by the wave when the boat starts sinking. And Gene Hackman leads a number of people up a Christmas tree to salvation. And he is therefore sort of their saviour, but he actually ends up dying, hanging above a fiery pit, railing against God for taking someone and saying, yeah, if you took her, take me instead. And so they moved the religious part of disaster genre really to the fore in that film. And guess what? The critics really didn't like it. It was seen that actually it was too overt. The moralizing was too overt. And what people liked within Disaster and the End of the World was that almost surprise element that you get in artworks like the last judgment where people choose to paint in in and of themselves who they think should be in you know, so you see people be the artist choosing like i think the pope should be in or i think this inventor should be in you'll see they choose who to put in and you get a bit of a surprise from an artist of who makes it on each side who's saved and who's damned and that was the element actually that people wanted in disaster films was this Jennifer Jones falls to her death in The Towering Inferno, the grandma. Who's going to die? Who's going to live? Sometimes the righteous don't live, and sometimes the unrighteous make it through and promise that they might improve things. And so that sort of is the narrative that got carried on because that moreover religious narrative wasn't so popular. But you still find scripture being used as comfort. So it's in 2012, as the president is saying what's going to happen, he says, whether we have oh, oh, any faith or none, I feel these words can speak to us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so he recites the Psalm and it's like, I, I don't know what the Buddhists are gonna think about that. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure it is for everyone. And so I think it reflects that sense of an inclusivity of belief when actually it's that sort of standard idea. And then in Geostorm, um, Ed Harris's character rails against God for not wiping out the bad countries and says he's taken on board the idea of God himself. And he's going to take out the bad guys. He can get rid of each of the bad countries and reset the world. So there's always that agenda in the background. There's a belief in some sort of divine figure most of the time. Nothing in Moonfall, just to point out at all. But that's quite um, that's extremely contemporary in relation to that. So, yeah. That's the sort of history of disaster and how that pops
0: up in disaster films. Do you see any kind of um, overt intertextuality with revelation uh, in particular, Uh, maybe reusing some of the apocalyptic tropes or 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 perhaps explicitly quoting it uh, in some way? I'm, I'm curious about that.
2: It it pops up in Greenland. Um, You always have somebody a bit weird, don't you, dealing with revelation? So I get to be the weirdo who deals with revelation. So you have a lady randomly reciting on a, a radio frequency that's found in a car saying, oh gosh, is there anyone out there? Is anybody even left alive that can hear me? And then I saw a great star fall from heaven and its name was Wormwood. And so you'll get that sort of overlay sometimes within it with somebody saying it's the apocalypse man it's the end of the world that level uh, there's a brilliant <laughs> brilliant line. Uh,
1: can we just pause and just say that was a great american accent where that's all right no it's amazing
2: <laughs> that's why uh,
1: <laughs> uh, that's amazing sorry go on
2: <laughs> you're watching too many hollywood films haven't i <laughs> so you've got the um, the idea of Billy Bob Thornton in Armageddon. Obviously, it might be, might be drawing on something from Revelation potentially there with its titling, maybe signaling something. He says, oh, it's going to happen. It's going to be the worst bits of the Bible, the apocalypse, the worst bits of the Bible. Uh, that turns out to be something like nuclear winter and total societal breakdown, which I hadn't seen happen in Revelation, but it's good to know that that's there. So. There's that, but I mean, you can overread it. You could say that there's lots and lots of things that come down out of heaven and hit people on the head. That's quite Revelation. (laughs) Like the angels throw things down out of heaven onto earth and bad things happen. You can have the idea that a third of the seas are wiped out, something like that. But Revelation, in and of itself, is also dealing with standard tropes of human disaster, war, pestilence, tsunami earthquake famine it's not like revelation has the complete and utter monopoly on that that is something people are dealing with and so the disaster genre in some ways is an inheritor of of this older idea of just how humans come to terms with disaster and how they face up to it what do they do where is a religious agenda within it where do they see their salvation coming from do you survive it do you try and escape it can you avert it What's brought it about? Can you pick through the pieces? Where's hope in all of this? The idea of hope is a really, really prevalent idea in disaster films. What do we hope in? Where do we put our trust? And how has the past played into it? Disaster films are alive with past disaster um, references. They, they're always we've got our expectations shaped by what's already happened in disaster and revelation in and of itself is that that's what revelation is doing. It's built up of all these different Hebrew Bible texts resonating as people read the text, which brings it alive with past memories to set things on fire and the people listening to it and disaster films in the same way do have that. So a slightly more meta version of an answer to your question, but probably a more true version. <laughs>
0: i I love that that uh, the way you talked about the kind of negotiation of how this has taken place um how people are responding to disaster in different ways Um, my favorite example of this is from hbo's leftovers by damon lindelof and uh spoiler alert the one of the things that you see in there is just kind of this reaction to this kind of left behind narrative um it's not you know all christians have disappeared there's just a handful of people that have disappeared and everybody is kind of trying to interpret this like what what exactly has happened you have some Christians who were quote unquote left behind who are among the leftovers who are you know negotiating their own faith and you know were the people taken bad ones and were the good ones or were we we were the ones that were forgotten by God you know interesting negotiation but um, you have different groups that emerge that try to interpret this in different ways and one of my favorite moments this is the spoiler alert is when there's this opening sequence of, of of a guy running through a submarine, and you're not really sure what's going on, but you realize that he's actually trying to detonate the submarine deep down uh, in in uh, in the ocean, and and it does go off, and you you realize later that he's motivated by Revelation 13. The idea that the beast will come from the sea, and because of all the all the sequence, uh, sequencing of apocalyptic events, he's trying to take out the beast before the beast takes over the world, uh, which which is just a delightful moment. And so I, I'm I'm curious about like those kinds of uh, examples where you have like characters who are motivated by scripture to do especially revelation to do interesting things within the narratives of these disaster films um are there any um examples like that that come to mind
2: it would be a nice idea wouldn't it but no <laughs> i'm gonna be honest they're not and it's what's really refreshing about them though i, I think there's something about flipping it around as we as Biblical scholars almost want to find these things. And some of the ways that they explore it are more subtle than that. So it's not necessarily about a particular verse or something driving people to do something. It's more questioning people's human nature, people's familial relationships are really important in these films. Who are you connected with? Which is a really revelation-based idea, right? Revelation starts with seven letters talking to these congregations, these groups of people, all with different life experiences, saying, you've been good, you've been naughty, this is gonna happen if you don't, this will happen if you do. And it's allowing those people to think through their situation, who they're going to be, who they want to be, who they are in relation to other people and how they might change. Then revelation is poured out, so it's heard, And so it gives you this cathartic, changing experience. And I think disaster films almost have that that deeper level of rather than I've got hung up on one thing that I think is happening, it's that more holistic exploration of if the world was going to end in six months time, in a week's time, or I was trapped in an environment where I could die within the next hour, how would I behave? What is my moral framework? What is my class background? What is my economic position? Who am I in relation to others? What have I done wrong? How corrupt am I? How hubristic am I? And Revelation is definitely a text that's taking on human hubris and it's taking on the hubris of Rome. It's taking on its empire and disaster films are very much taking on the hubris of humanity. As I said earlier, you always have a big building being knocked out. Towering Inferno, they built too high. The Poseidon Adventure, they thought they could outrun the gods. Airplane, the the initial starter of all this, they flew too high. There's this idea that humans can Be something, and that perhaps, particularly in the 70s, that we need to be brought back down to earth or given a very good washing out to really realize that that's not quite the case. And this is where it went wrong in some ways in the 90s, where the hubris and humility was forgotten to some extent. Armageddon facing Armageddon, not like in Revelation, where you think, Where am I? Who am I? How am I behaving? was yeah, we can get together and kick butt, and it'll be great. It's post Cold War. We got nukes, we fire them at things, boom, sorted. And it's interesting, the nuclear weapon thing. It's always popping up in end of the world stuff, even in Don't Look Now where we've been facing contemporary issues in relation to Russia and Ukraine, where the the nuclear rhetoric has risen up again. Somehow or the other, don't look now offers nuclear weapons as a potential for salvation. I know it's targeting climate change as a satire, but in its basic plot, nuclear weapons are proffered as a way to save humanity, which is a really strange thing to do. So it's still, it's taking on hubris in some ways, but the film in and of itself perhaps falls down in relation to that so yeah and i also have to do my biblical scholar thing which is obviously the left behind things not very revelation and i gotta push that because it's not really there but people might not like to hear that
1: yeah i mean you mentioned um in the book of revelation you know you, there is a clear enemy you know it, it's rome uh it, it's a number of things and also there's a hope you know that, that god will act mm-hmm. if not now in the in point. the end at the end of time and or the end of days and and uh really that he you know is sovereign throughout all of this suffering right and so within disaster films there is generally a villain um that is something other than the catastrophe at hand um and also there's a hope uh, and i wondered if you could maybe talk a bit more about the tropes mm-hmm. of you know who are some of these villains yeah, yeah. Um, that are being opposed, you know, in Don't Look Up, for instance, you know, there's the, the clear villains and, you know, it's it's tackling climate change and those who would deny it and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's pretty on the nose. Uh, and also the hope is, I feel like, the, the more interesting thing. where Where is the hope being found? But I wonder about other films. You know, where's the villain and where's the hope?
2: Yeah, and with Revelation, I just have to put it out there that I think, yes, there is a... Reve- the clear villain, but Revelation's a really slippery text. And we still haven't decided, you know, are the four horsemen, is the first one Jesus? That's a really big belief in the early church, that the one wearing the crown is is Jesus, whereas you'll read commentary saying, well, these are demonic figures, which by other commentators is read as a figure of Christ. So it's not quite as clear cut. And it, it does play with you a little bit more than that, as everything that's good should. Let's face it. We don't want it. It's a text where it's saying get out, but getting out might be a little bit more complicated and tricky than it might initially appear as life actually is. So, yeah, don't look up because it moves sometimes into parody. It is really obvious that it's taking on the Trump administration. It's clear who's a bit evil. But at the end of that, what I would say is I found that table scene actually taking to pieces the people around the table and probably the liberal middle class who were watching the film and finding it funny because I was really struggling with who wanted to watch that movie who was it aimed at really because it seemed like it was aimed at the converted because everybody I know who's liked it is like well climate change is a bad thing so it's like what, what, what is this is it just like some sort of insider prod that other people don't sit where we do on our views and I felt at the end when they did say that prayer and I I felt it was meant to be moving, but at the same time empty. And this idea of a communal meal, and they're sitting around talking about the merits of shop-bought versus home-baked and grinding your own coffee beans. And my question was, when he says we really did have it all, didn't we? That is all cut over with these pictures of animals and with human disasters that are happening now. It's footage off of YouTube of otters dying, of bears in shops, of the world falling to pieces. And I think it might, in its final shots, turn a finger to more liberal viewers, middle class, and their consumption habits as actually potentially being a little bit evil themselves. Literally, didn't we have it all, the humans, versus the rest of the world that we've taken it all away from? The bees, the rainforest, the oceans. In our race to consume to have our homemade food. Really, what are we destroying? So I felt that actually it broke down that separation of villain versus good guy a little bit at the end. And I always like things where they do that. And disaster movies, really bad ones, maybe don't do this so well, but there is the idea that particularly in the 70s, the person who should be the good guy potentially doesn't end up that way. So the epitome of this would be Charlton Heston's character, Stuart Graf. In Earthquake. Stuart, we would, as graph we would expect ch- played by Charleston, and some critics have said, is some sort of Jesus Moses figure. You'd expect it from who he's played in the past. But actually, he ends up having an affair. His wife's always trying to kill herself. He's just got promoted. And he just chases off to try and save his lover as the city around him burns. He refuses to help injured people until. Um, a disgraced policeman tells him that he needs to help. And what you find is actually the disgraced policeman, Lou, rises up to be the strong character. And Stuart, with Charlton Heston, ends up being swept away in the wave, trying to save his wife at the end. In a good redeeming act, but he's a lost character and a lost soul within the film. And so it does have this changing around of what we would expect. I've already said Gene Hackman, the preacher, he's a strong character to the end, but does fall to his death in the flames. There are some moral judgments. So surprisingly, the ex-sex worker falls to her judgment, maybe not so surprisingly in a 1970s film. There are some real middle-class value-laden decisions within this. The evil russian billionaire oligarch who has funded the building of one of the arcs in 2012 to save people he falls to his death as does his plastic surgery enhanced wife who ends up uh, girlfriend actually i should say because there's always slight moral judgments on relationships she ends up drowning but saves her dog the children always live that's really important. Disaster films don't wipe out any of the children characters, but there is an idea of certain people, very, very rich people who are evils so in the towering inferno, the son-in-law of the owner forced to his death because he tries to push himself in front of other people. And they are value laden and then they do reflect certain middle-class values, which is interesting because they make us question our own position. And what I like about them is they make us question, what would we do in that situation? And I think sometimes with Revelation, it's more difficult to question, how would I behave in this situation? <laughs> and, and I think when I read Revelation, I find the letters are far more, as I said, they have that local narrative to them. So Revelation sits between this grand and local narrative. It has the letters to these congregations, and then it has this huge cosmic action going on. And so. The questions we want to ask ourselves as communities, as structures, as nations vary between the local and the grand. And disaster movies do allow us to see those questions. How do different nations deal with disaster? How do rich people deal with disaster? How do poor people deal with disaster? How do different countries betray it? And so it allows that, that local and grand narrative that Revelation also attacks in relation to those questions. Hmm.
0: That, uh, that point about especially no look up and how, you know, the liberal values might be complicit with the position that you described there. Uh, we really did have it all as everything's kind of being destroyed all around them. Uh, It reminds me of The Good Place, especially uh, season three, where there's a kind of ecological twist to the notion of your your good deeds need to outweigh your bad deeds in order to make it to the good place. Because what they find, and this is a spoiler, sorry, for those who haven't seen The Good Place, but what they find is that no one's actually been to The Good Place in like 500 some years. Uh, And and as they discover the reason why, it's because of these ecological uh, connections to their quote-unquote good deeds you know they did this this thing that was quote-unquote good but actually it has this you know ripple effect that uh, that is uh quite problematic because of these ecological concerns etc and you know i was thinking about revelation and how especially like you know the american church uh loves to read revelation in a particular way as critiquing them and i just wonder how much is it critiquing us you know in in our complicit uh allegiance uh to to uh power structures that are problematic and evil and that that's something that also comes to mind when thinking about this idea of uh you know how how does disaster probe us you know not just something that we survive but something that uh critiques us in this in similar ways
2: and and it should because in the end we're not experiencing disaster except in a cognitive way when we're watching these films it may bring about emotional responses and that might change us but we're not actually living through the disaster it did all change after 9-11 in relation to disaster movies, of course, because it played out on people's screams in reality. And when you see the opening footage of the meteor attack in Armageddon, it's got point of view shots with people falling out of the Chrysler building onto the street, right down onto the camera. And so this changed the face of what was seen as acceptable within disaster movies and how we consume disaster because we are consuming it. We're buying it. We're going. It's meant to be a pleasurable experience. If it's awful, you're not going to go and see it. So there is the idea of what disaster might actually do to us. And the scene has changed since then. You don't see the hammy versions that you see in Armageddon. It's done with more distance these days. Bodies might be swept away, but there'll be a pause afterwards. There'll be some very, very um, sincere music afterwards. There's not lots and lots of body pulp going on. So that's a a real change within it. But there's also this interesting idea called... um, disaster porn and this was brought up in relation to our consumption of disaster what are we doing as humans when we're consuming this when we're watching it is it doing something good for us and this is always the question with revelation i have lots of people saying i can't believe you're smiling if you study that that's such a horrible book why would you want to read that i don't think it should be in the canon it's got no purpose it's only ever created violence all of those kind of things And we have the same question thrown at video games and at cinema, don't we? It's evil. What's it doing? What does it do for us? So what is happening when we watch disaster films? Is it just disaster porn? Now, this term was brought about in relation to an increase in showing real life disasters on the news. So floods in Mozambique, tsunami in Asia, how many dead bodies we were literally seeing on screen. When I was growing up and the famines were happening in Ethiopia, gives you an idea of just what a elderly lady I am. Um, The 1980s famines, it had a really big warning beforehand, if you were seeing any distressing scenes and that was just people looking really hungry. These days, it's quite normal to consume dead bodies on the news and to see people who are dead. I watch Narcos a lot as a series. There's a lot of footage of dead Colombian people interdispersed, and it's real footage, and it just happens all the time. It just cuts in. We just see all these dead bodies that have been destroyed. And we do statistically consume it far more now than we used to. And there was this worry that from doing it, there would be fatigue and that people would be numbed by looking at it. What happens when we experience these things? But actually, at the end of the research, they found out that people consuming disaster, viewing disaster, there was actually an increase in donations to charity. So actually, the Haitian um, earthquake, which did show some really brutal scenes on American screens after that, there was a huge outpouring of humanity and a sense of needing to help and so there are these questions of what happens when we do experience it is it something negative does it have a numbing effect on us do we just carry on and go oh yeah that's a dead body or if we approach it in the right way can it actually have a benefit for us as humans, even if it's an armchair consumption, because that's what it is, we're going, we're literally sat in an armchair or in a cinema chair consuming it. Can it touch us by making us think, I'm experiencing something that's out of my experience. But realistically, when you see big waves smacking against people, that's happening around the world. When you see floods happening, that's happening now, today. When you see tornadoes, it's not like the States isn't hit by those. These things do happen. Grenfell in London is a great example of a real life towering inferno. And how do we bring people to justice after that? And we've seen also in the pandemic, renting and streaming of Contagion and the 12 Monkeys was off the scale. It was a way that people actually came to terms with it. And after 9 11, people were renting Towering Inferno and Armageddon to almost rewatch. And this dates right back into 1923 earthquake in Japan. There was a huge creation of woodcuts that sold. People wanted to see pictures of the burnt down buildings to actually like consume the destroyed buildings, what they looked like before and what they looked like afterwards. There is something within the 20th century, 21st century human psyche that seems to indicate that being able to experience this can have some sort of cathartic and... Um, as I said, potentially humanizing effect on us. And actually, if we reread Revelation through those eyes, potentially that can help us think about it differently as well. And what we see with that destruction and how we approach it.
1: Yeah, I think that's really profound. I feel like when um, COVID first hit, there was a film that came out a few months afterwards that was... I could, I can't believe anyone decided to make it, but it was just, it was just this disaster porn of, you know, what would happen if COVID went on for four more years, you know, it's COVID 24 and you're like, dude, you suck. Whoever made them. I hope they have a terrible day today. Cause um, they're just, it's just, it was just preying on people's fears and it was, it was, it was just bad. And I wonder if there's a difference in terms of what, what, the differences between the kind of the disaster porn that's actually capitalizing, literally capitalism and capitalizing on people's fears to make money. And what are the films and how are they different? Um, the ones that are actually capturing and and really speaking to the human condition in ways that are not self-serving in terms of capital. I mean, obviously cinema is inherently capitalistic. So there's not really a way to get around that, but. If you understand my question, you know, we do. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, we are
2: talking about potentially one of the lesser brow genres. And bear in mind, this doesn't have half as much attention. You want to go with Jesus films. You know, people say, oh, nobody's written on this Jesus film. It's like, yeah, nobody. There are some great books on disaster film. Uh, a nod to Keen's um, study of disaster film. That's really great. I'll hold it up so you two can see it. It's Stephen Keen's Disaster Films. That's really good. Um, but it's not as studied, and they are seen as kind of drunk popcorn drugged popcorn big loud and stupid so we can't push their profundity too far uh, but I think they can tell us something profound about ourselves because they are consumed and they have been consumed and there's very few things that can allow you to see the same thing which is the end of the world or people dying in disasters but over 50 years and see how their face faced this differently the trends that happen the ideologies caught up in it One of the films I would flag up, though, that I think probably does meet more at what Brandon's getting at here is Mimi Leader's Deep Impact from 1998. It's the only one that's been directed by a woman, interestingly, they are um, a real male genre. She bought it out at the same time. The two films, Michael Bay's Armageddon 1998 and Mimi Leader's Deep Impact 1998, both came out in the big summer of... um, that year, where there were a lot of huge blockbusters. So, two Comet movies. Now, Comet movies about the end of the world have actually been around since silent cinema. There were these ideas of people thinking the world was going to end, and some people choosing to go for orgies, and some people choosing to pray. And the people who chose to pray were happy, and the people that went for the orgy all went a bit wrong for. So, there, it has been around as an idea. But for it to be this sort of great big Hollywood spectacle is Different, And the two films are about the same idea, but they couldn't be much more different. And Mimi Lader's film is a really interesting portrayal of humanity and what happens with the threat of the comet rather than the action of... I'm going to be the saviour. Which is what you have with Bruce Willis, which is doing loads and loads of plays on his Die Hard character. And there are some of the script nods to Die Hard and to his star persona. And it's playing on that and it's got a stupid love overlay with AJ and Grace. And it's just bath-tastic. But Mimi Leader is the one that actually made me cry after I watched all these. I watched like 20 disaster movies back to back. And by the time I watched this one, I was like... (laughs) it does break you when you watch this many people hugging people goodbye and dying but it has these different groups and it does have new found friendships new formed groups and people choosing to do different things so what would you do if you got given a seat on a plane and you saw someone sat with a child who was going to die? would you give them your ticket what would you do who would you be reunited with what would happen if there was a choice of who got chosen through a lottery to go into a place of safety and the rest of the people didn't make it in? How would society play that out? Is that a moral thing to do? And she plays with some of these more interesting human questions. It has arcs as a place of salvation. So it is nodding to uh, biblical tropes in relation to that. And 2012 also has arcs. And that's all looking back actually to um, when worlds collide in the 1950s, where they create arcs, which are spaceships. But it's got a lot more of this profundity that we've talked about. And it does explore human patterns of behaviour. And people do say the female feminist lens which is presented helps with that there's far more female characters there's far more of the emotional connection between people and it has Robert Duval's character talking to his dead wife and um, before he dies he can't connect it has the um Mario Bello she's playing the captain she says goodbye to her son over a um grainy video connection which with Covid they were like hand to hand on a video screen was pretty profound to watch and so it it plays with those deeper questions of how do we be good humans if you couldn't make it in if you're going to die how do you do that well which I think is when disaster does it at its best it's it's how do you do good and Greenland also offers this Uh, although it focuses just on one family it's one of the only ones to show complete cosmic like obliteration or earth obliteration but it does have an idea of people who come along and help and people who come along and hinder it's not a brilliant film but it gets behind if you were a person encountering other people struggling at the end of the world how would you behave would you give them a lift would you try and steal their pass off them if you felt it could save you what would you do for your child how far would you go would you give someone a lift in your plane if it could make it overweight and it might not work out for you? Would you let extra people in at the end if it could lower the rations for people who are going to make it into a bunker? So it, when it pushes us to those questions, I think it is helpful. And I think it can ask, it can expedite questions that we might not face on a day-to-day basis, but all of us could face at some point. And people in leadership do face all the time.
1: I think with the, pandemic, you know, other than obviously there's bad examples or always gonna be bad examples, but it it seems that on the most part, um, at least in the early days of the pandemic, that people did come together and people did care for one another and act, do their best to act neighborly. And it wasn't perfect. And government's response was always pretty bad, but on a human to human level, neighbor to neighbor, it seemed that when disaster struck, we were able to actually care for one another. Um, So we've all kind of experienced our own disaster film in the past few years, and uh, we maybe hopefully have come through the other side, better humans uh, and, (laughs) <laughs> and are
2: out
1: of Perhaps <laughs> hopefully we're out of the disaster film And we're not just entering the second act Or the third act There's
2: never a sequel Actually I lie I was going to say there's never a sequel with a disaster movie But that's complete rubbish Airplane had three iterations So um, not airplanes right? Airport I said airplane earlier on Airplane's the parody Airport And then there's two more There's Concord And there's an underwater adventure in 77 as well So they did keep coming back with plane issues but in general, you don't get a second disaster. Maybe. It's not Armageddon 2. Praise the Lord for that fact. <laughs> it, it does have to have that sort of this is the end. And we talked about hope, didn't we, as well, and them having hope in them. And they do all offer some level of hope. And there's a history of the idea of rebuilding as well. And this was really... Um, Wedded to Christian culture early on. So, two of the early, early, they'd be called disaster films or even disaster movies, but sort of historical disasters playing out real life events. So, you've got um, in old Chicago and San Francisco, both from the 1930s. And at the end of um, San Francisco, you've sort of had the immoral people judged and the good people have survived and then you have clark gable and the whole crowd all walking down the hill together singing glory glory and the new yeah and they're going to rebuild and they're marching towards san francisco and then it has the city as it is at the time of the film with its towering what they've created it's it's kind of on good wishy-washy Christian morals that this city has come up and in old Chicago it has the same idea that my son has died but every brick we lay every bit of timber that we put down we will build in his memory and in a good way so there's this idea of when we rebuild that we're rebuilding something in memory of the people who've died and in a way that will be better that happens again in in um, Deep Impact where they've got the shell of the white house being rebuilt before but with a black president which makes a very different um, idea from the original building of uh, the capitol building and then you've got the rebuild is um dwayne johnson's phrase at the end of san andreas as well which is playing on san francisco the film um the old 1930s film and then in skyscraper 2018 it's uh when he's asked what are you going to do the um, the Hong Kong businessman says, oh, rebuild. So there is this idea that we will come back and build again. We, will
1: be back. we, al- we also get that in the uh, award winning film uh, Wally. Uh, the Disney Pixar <laughs> film that isn't, I don't know if you can quite call it a disaster, it's like post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic
2: but, is probably where I put it, but yeah, they
1: do yeah. come back and they rebuild and they you've
2: always got to have to rebuild, and look, I mean is there a book that might be in relation to rebuilding, in relation to everything being destroyed, I don't know, but maybe Revelation is, uh, yeah, I'm interested in how Revelation has embedded some tropes within us about the end of things, and One of the things is a rebuilt environment, um, the idea that you rebuild, you don't, you know, the empire in Rome is gold and shiny and and revelation rebuilds a remarkably large gold shiny thing, doesn't it? I mean, Constantinian Christianity didn't have a problem taking on the revelation message. It's interesting that it pops up in a lot of uh, mosaics quite early on in quite a kingly way. The idea of gold shiny things was very appealing to people so what happens when this turn to rebuilding this turn to building vertically building big things i've said about big things being knocked down as a key to human hubris but revelation has a very very high building being built at the end of it as well as as a sense of achievement and building up after all that has happened and what happens when we build and we don't make a place for the rest of the ecosystem does Revelation really have a space for much more than a lamb? We know the dogs are left outside. Uh, so we've got some animal excuse, exclusion there. But as Dave Horrell and other eco-critics have pointed out, where really is this uh, ecosystem outside of Revelation? It's this great big gold city just with one lamb and a tree. Uh, I don't know how how many fields and cows there are. What is our vision for rebuilding? What is our vision for a future How do we think about things? Scenes that reflect human destruction in disaster films tend to be buildings. So it's a floppy Eiffel Tower or a smackdown Basilica, something like that. That's what we have to show that humans are no longer there and that the work of our hands have been destroyed. But interestingly, although it's coming down from heaven, it's a built environment that Revelation ends with. So we have this connection of destruction, built environment and rebuilding caught up at the end of the Christian Testament as well, which I think is something worth examining ourselves on when we do face issues of climate crisis. What do we put a value on and, and how have these images shaped the way that we go about building and seeing what's good
0: i feel like interstellar is an interesting example here i don't know if this is uh technically a disaster film but it is obviously full of uh ecological crisis and you know the the solution is really to depart uh and to to build elsewhere rather than return and rebuild and it's kind of predicated on some really interesting you know kind of I don't know if time travel is the right word, or at least this idea of some future version of humanity uh, intervening uh, in its own kind of cosmic uh, deification uh, by by preserving uh, by preserving humanity in order that they could eventually become deified in some way, uh, which is quite fascinating. Speaking of hubris, I mean the hubris that leads to the ecological crisis apparently never ends. We become gods, so that's just a really fascinating you know sort of uh not really a counter example but just interesting no, it's in, in interesting. its placement in this conversation
2: no it is it's this idea of how what does the hope look like right it's very easy to throw the word hope around and disaster films always have to give a glimpse of the afterworld what what happens after the disasters happen so in Greenland it's just a really broken wasteland with nothing but as they come out there are a couple of birds that fly around and then they do hear other voices on the radio, realising other pockets of people have survived in bunkers. That's hope. That other humans exist and that a couple of birds are flying around. So there is this sense of how do we portray hope after the things have happened within the secular apocalypse? What does it look like? And within Revelation, what, what does the hope look like? You've still got the destruction. And then what does the written account portray for people and it, it is the built environment within revelation so yeah get busy go somewhere else I mean that's what they try and do as well and don't look up right in the credits footage as they take off and try and populate somewhere else and um, doesn't go so brilliantly does it but the thing that I found really interesting with don't look up which is it kind of ties in with this is during the credit sequence it's not when all the evils of the world had been released, hope was left, but it's when all these evils of the world had been released, stuff was left. And actually Brandon talked about the prayer that said around the table, but the one that's actually answered is Jason, the terrible president's son who prays for the stuff, right? There's dope stuff out there. There's watches, there's great apartments. And I don't want that to go away. So save the stuff. And actually at the end, floating up in space after earth is gone preserved forever is the skateboard the new york bull her badge from the uh, from her job and each character is given their own little stuff cipher so ron perlman has his hat and so everybody is broken down to their piece of stuff at the end and so the only hope left is the destruction we've created ourselves at the work of our hands by all of the plastic products that we've created that aren't going to go away anywhere and there's this idea within disaster that you can have a repristination so in 2012 the um the earth's axis reverses and so that's seen as the south coming to the north and the idea that um, Africa is now the highest place on the earth The global South becomes the place where the North flees to in the day after tomorrow, as they fly across, they flee across the barrier in a given refuge in Mexico from America. This idea that the world has recreated itself, and it says at the end of the day after tomorrow, have you ever seen the air look so clear? There's this idea that somehow or the other, something has been wiped out, but things can come back, and. The Day After Tomorrow doesn't give us quite such a hopeful presentation because it's showing what we've done to the earth with all of the things that we have made and produced that will outlive all of us. You know, this Sushi Go game I've got here in a metal case is likely, the case is likely to last longer than I am. What happens with what we've done? What have we created? And at the end of Revelation, we've got this gold city, you know, that's that's made of, of stuff. What happens with stuff? How much, where is the place for stuff versus the natural world that we inhabit? What is our relationship as humans with stuff? And Revelation does it does do this as i go back to the seven letters you know that you shouldn't you know you've got this but you should be going for this you think that you are this but you are not you think that you can see clearly but you should find soul for your eyes because you can't see clearly so if some of you are suffering and that's okay and it's those local narratives again that It always has to be framed with those of you think it's one thing, but what is it for you? What are you chasing after? What is your purpose? Where are you in this? Who are you? And that's where I felt Don't Look Up had a very interesting point in relation. Its final scenes, I think, speaks more critically to its audience of who are we and how do we define ourselves in relation to stuff and things and buildings and, and what is it? for us to to have a future legacy.
0: Well, Dr. Fletcher, this has been a fantastic conversation. It's so wonderful to talk about disaster films uh, of all things uh and and to think about yeah, what the, what their function is in 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 terms of cinematic history and also in terms of like our kind of societal interest in them and what we can learn from them and also how they uh play upon biblical precedent. So I just uh, really appreciate your insights and conversation today.
2: Thanks so much. It's been great.